So, brothers and sisters, as we start our message today, I want you to think about what you'd feel like if you knew you had to go to the dentist. Now, I know that's a a slightly odd question to sort of start off with, but for most of us in here, to think about going to the dentist, it's not the, it doesn't really fill us with a lot of joy. You know, imagine you've got a tooth that's painful, you know that going to the dentist is probably the right thing to do, but you don't really want to go. You don't want to sit on that chair that they lower you down on and have that horrible fluid in your mouth that they say, don't swallow, but you end up swallowing in it. You don't want that needle that they put into the roof of your mouth to numb half your face. And you don't want the sensation of drilling going on. And with that, I've made your fears worse. (laughs) But it's true, though, isn't it? With going to the dentist, on the one hand, we know it's a good thing, but we know also it's something that we're worried about. We're, We're fearful of it. We don't really want to do it. Now, I bring this up because I've been a Christian now for about 13 or 14 years, and I've watched Christians behave for the last... 13 or 14 years, and watch myself behave, and I've come to the conclusion that the way the majority of us feel about going to the dentist is the way we feel about Christian fellowship, relating to each other as believers. In my own personal experience, I've had some amazing, and still do have some amazing relationships with brothers in the church, and I've really seen God speak through those brothers, use those brothers to help me in my walk. But I'll be honest, I've been, when I've been most frustrated as a Christian, when I've been most incensed as a Christian, it's when I've been relating to other brothers or sisters. Maybe they've hurt me, they've done something to frustrate me, they've sinned against me. This is what it's like, isn't it? We have this this kind of tension going on. On the one hand, we know that Christian fellowship is good. It's a great thing that God has given us. But on the other hand, it's something we're slightly wary of. We're a bit suspicious. We don't really know what's going to happen when we truly open our hearts up to another brother or sister. Now, why is that? Why are we like that? Why why do we have that tension? Well, it's because we're sinners still. You know, we still make mistakes, don't we, in relationships. We still can hurt people. We can still do things that are wrong. I would say more specifically, the reason why we have this tension is because our sin leads to pride. And we don't really want to be honest with each other. We don't really want to be real about where we're at with Jesus. We don't want to be vulnerable with each other. And because of that, because of that pride, it often leads to hypocrisy in the way that we relate to each other in church. I mean, we've all had this classic scenario, haven't we, where we get up on a Sunday morning and we don't really want to go to church. We're frustrated with the church, frustrated with me, frustrated with John, frustrated with your sin, frustrated with someone else's sin. But by God's grace, you go to church and another brother or sister asks you and says, hey, how are you doing? And the classic answer is, I'm okay. I'm not too bad. What have you done there? 
you've lied. You've been a hypocrite in the way that you relate to that person. Or the other classic example is you get up on a Sunday morning and you have the joy of the Lord in your heart. You are just so stable and so loving the Lord. You go to church, you see another brother or sister struggling, and you don't share that joy with them because you don't want to make it worse. What have you done? You've lied. You've been a hypocrite. You've not seen that God might want to use your joy in the Lord to help that person. This is what we do. Am I right in that? Has anyone else had that experience? This is what we're like. And this hypocrisy in the way we relate to each other fuels this kind of tension, this frustration that we might have with relationships in church. Now, James is dealing with that very issue in verse 13. Last week, in the first 12 verses of chapter 5, John was speaking on the fact that faith endures to the end. And James, in this verse, is changing his direction and he's changing his attention to Christian fellowship. And particularly to be sincere in Christian fellowship. He's saying to these guys, look, I know you're having a difficult time. I know you're being persecuted. I know things have not happened the way you expected them to happen. But I want you to be real with one another. I want you to be true, to be honest. Look, if you're suffering, is anyone among you suffering? Let him pray. Acknowledge that you need to pray when you're suffering, either by yourself or with other people in the church. Is anyone cheerful? Let him sing psalms. If you have joy, well, be joyous. Sing about it, either on your own or with other people, to encourage them. And he's doing this, listen, because James knows that as believers, we have been given a freedom in Christ to be honest, to be real, and to be vulnerable with each other. Because we're justified in Christ. Do you not know, brothers and sisters, that when Jesus was going to the cross, he knew about every single one of the sins that would be present in your life. And he allowed himself to take responsibility and ownership of that sin. He allowed himself to be judged, to be punished, to bear the wrath of God for each one of you on the cross. And what did he say? He said at the cross, it is finished. That means there's no more judgment, no more punishment, no more wrath for your sin. He then died, he rose again on the third day, and the resurrected Jesus is the very evidence that we need that everything that Jesus said that he did at the cross was real, it was true, and it was genuine. So that if you put your faith in Jesus, if you believe that he is your savior and you see sin the way God sees sin, you are justified, you are innocent, you are righteous before the Father for now and forevermore. Hallelujah. That's what the Lord has done for us on the cross. And it's that justification that lays the foundation for us to be real with each other. You don't need to fear what other people think about you. 
Because God sees you as his child. God sees you as innocent and righteous before him in Christ. And I would say that when we don't relate to each other sincerely, it's because we're not living in the justification that God has given us to the fullest extent. Look, listen, don't get me wrong. I'm not saying that you have to tell every single Christian all of your problems. That would not be a good idea. But what I am saying is that we have no excuse not to pursue real, genuine fellowship with each other because of what Jesus has done on the cross. And this is what James is getting at in verse 13. He is wanting to say, look, have real, genuine fellowship with each other because of what Jesus has done. And what you're going to see as we go on in this text is that really the whole theme of these verses is the idea of pursuing real, genuine fellowship with each other. In verses 14 and 15, we're going to see the pursuit of it in the presence of sickness. In verses um, 16, 17, and 18, we're going to see it in the presence of sin in our lives. And then in verses 19 and 20, we're going to see it in the presence of a wandering soul. And I think, brothers and sisters, that it is fitting that James ends this letter speaking about the pursuit of genuine fellowship. Because remember, the, remember where these people have been. They have been in a very difficult place. They've been persecuted. They've been possibly kicked, or they're being kicked out of Jerusalem as this letter's being written. And what happens when Christians go through difficult time and persecution? Well, often churches split. Churches divide. Relationships end. Because there's anger, there's you know, disappointment, people hurt each other. But what's James doing here? He is encouraging these guys to keep pursuing real fellowship. You know what that says to me? It says that James believed that the Spirit was well able, even in the presence of great difficulty and persecution, to keep these people together. And he's ending encouraging that to continue on in the future. And you know, when Christians pursue genuine fellowship in these things that we're going to talk about, it brings glory to God. It brings glory to God for two reasons. The first one is it confirms his character. In Psalm 68, verses 5 and 6, we read the following. It says, A father to the fatherless, a defender of widows, is God in his holy habitation. God sets the solitary or the the lonely in families. He brings out those who are bound into prosperity, but the rebellious dwell in a dry land. What links these three things together? Sickness, sin, and a wandering soul? Often people in those situations are lonely. They're in a difficult place. They're separate from people. And if we pursue genuine fellowship in the presence of those things, we are doing what God would do. We are confirming the reality that he is concerned about the lonely. He is concerned about the people that are hurting in our congregation. So it brings glory to him because we confirm his character, but also it brings glory to him because it glorifies something that he's doing in the world today. 
Do you know, brothers and sisters, when you read the writings of Peter and Paul, you see that God, the Father, Jesus, the Spirit, is doing a wonderful thing in this world. He is creating for himself a special people, a set-apart people, a people that is holy and righteous before him, a royal priesthood. He is bringing both Gentile and Jew together as one man in Jesus Christ. And when we are pursuing real fellowship, when we are pursuing what God wants to do in this world, in the church, bringing together as one everything in Christ, it glorifies him. He is pleased when we pursue real fellowship, real relationships, because it just glorifies the reality that we are a spiritual house in Christ, with Jesus as the chief cornerstone. This is why this stuff is important. John always gives me the last message in every book that we do, often, because <laughs> it's kind of the graveyard shift. No one's really listening. Come on, let's just get on with it. Let's get on to the next one. You know, but this is why <laughs> this is important, because, and this is why I want you to pay attention, because if you listen to what the Spirit is saying through these things, you're going to glorify God if you live them out. So let's see what he says. The first thing is in verses 14 and 15, where he's encouraging us to pursue genuine fellowship in the presence of sickness. He says there, Is anyone among you sick? Let him call for the elders of the church and let them pray over him, anointing him with oil in the name of the Lord. Now, obviously, in that verse, you see that he mentions, firstly, this word sick, or someone who's sick. And the word there in the Greek really means physical impairment or physical disease. He's, he's speaking about someone who's suffering physically. And I think before we unpack what James is saying in these two verses, we need to lay some foundations about what the Scriptures teach about disease Christians and how that all works together. I think most people in here would agree with me that the idea that when you become a Christian that you're not going to have any illness or disease in the future is absolutely preposterous. Most of us in here will know Christians, godly men and women who have gone through physical illness, physical disease, to the extent where they may have actually passed on to be with the Lord. Why is that? Why do we have physical disease, physical sickness as Christians? Well, it's because, very simply, we still live in a fallen body. We live in a body that still has that curse of Adam, the inherited sin that's been passed from him to us. And because of that, at any time in our life, we could succumb to a physical illness or disease. Even though we're born again and we have the Spirit of God within us, we have eternal life within us, we have a renewing nature that's going on within our hearts, we still can have physical illness. Paul knew about this in 2 Corinthians chapter 4, verse 16, where he said, Therefore we do not lose heart, even though our outward man is perishing, yet the inward man is being renewed day by day. Do you see what he's saying? That He says, inside me, I'm being renewed by the presence of God 
I'm being prepared for eternity to be with him, but my outward man, my physical man, is decaying away. He's perishing. He's being, in a sense, prepared for the grave to be resurrected again in the future. Now, even though that's the case, I do firmly believe that when Jesus was at the cross, he purchased for us, listen, absolute redemption from sin and from physical illness. I say that because in Isaiah 53, verses 4 and 5, it says the following. It says, Surely he has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows, yet we esteemed him stricken, smitten by God and afflicted. But he was wounded for our transgressions. He was bruised for our iniquities. The chastisement for our peace was upon him. And by his stripes we are healed. Hallelujah. Interestingly, at the beginning of that where it says, surely he has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows, the way that the writers of the New Testament interpreted that was that he uh, took upon himself our physical illness and our physical sickness. So Jesus at the cross, when his blood was shed, he purchased for us redemption from sin and physical illness. But at the moment, listen, we live in attention. We live with the kingdom of God present now, but not completely here yet. And so I would say that we are not going to experience absolute freedom from physical illness until Jesus comes back again and we receive our resurrected bodies that are free from the presence of sin. So he's purchased it for us, but we're not living in the fullness of it yet. We have this tension to live in. But God in his grace and in his mercy, he knows that we suffer physical illness. He has in his grace given the gifts of the Spirit to the church, and one of those gifts is the gift of healing. And we firmly believe at this church that the gifts of the Spirit are still for today, that they didn't cease when the Scriptures were complete, and that God still does heal today. Now, I could spend a long, long time about how that works, about how the gifts of the Spirit work and how the gift of healing might come forth in the church, but I don't have time to do that today. But I think it's sufficient for me to say that God does still heal, we believe He still heals, and he can do that at any time that he wants. But what we're going to focus on in these verses is a specific way that God brings about that physical healing through the gift of healing in the church. In verse 14, he says again, is anyone among you sick? So he's saying, look, listen, if you're sick, listen to this. He says, let him call for the elders of the church and let them pray over him, anointing him with oil in the name of the Lord. Now in that verse, there are two exhortations to two groups of people. The first one is to a sick person or sick people in the church. And the exhortation is that he wants a sick person, someone who's physically unwell, to call for the elders of the church. And the idea behind calling for the elders is to say, hey, you come here to me. I need you to come here and help me. And then the exhortation to the elders is that if they're called to a sick person, they should anoint him with oil. And the word for oil there is where we get olive oil. 
in the name of the Lord and pray for them. Now, there's two things there. There's prayer and there's this anointing with oil. One of them is very easy to understand. When it says that they're to pray, it means that they literally pray for that person to be healed in the name of Jesus. When it says anoint them with oil, that's a little bit more difficult to understand. And there have been two main interpretations of that in church history. The first one is the medicinal interpretation where people have believed that what James is saying here is that the elders go to the person, they pray for them, and they give them some olive oil to be used as medicine in their illness. And they get that from the parable of the Good Samaritan where the Good Samaritan anointed the uh, wounds of the sick person with olive oil. The second interpretation is the symbolic one where people believe that what James is saying here is that the elders go to this person, they pray for them, and they literally anoint them with olive oil, pour olive oil over their head. And they get that from the anointing of the high priest in the Old Testament and the anointing of David when he became king. Now, I personally favor the second interpretation because I think James, being a Jewish Christian, would have taken a lot of his emphasis in theology from the Old Testament. So I think what he's saying is that the elders go to the person, they pray for this person to be healed, and they anoint them with olive oil. And then what happens? Well, in verse 15 it says, And the prayer of faith will save the sick, and the Lord will raise him up. Now, where it says there, saving the sick and the Lord will raise him up, the idea behind that is literally that this sick person will be physically healed and they will be lifted up from the place of lowness that they've been and be restored to a very fruitful walk with the Lord. But notice, look, it says it's the prayer of faith that brings that about. What is that prayer of faith? Well, let's go back to verse 14. The sick person, what are they doing? In them asking for the elders to come, they are acknowledging their obedience to God's word and they are believing, listen, that God can heal them. That is the prayer of faith in action. Their actions are showing that prayer of faith. But then the elders, what are they doing? Them going to the sick person acknowledges that they see that they need to be obedient to God's word and that they believe that God can heal this person. That is in action the prayer of faith. But it's not just in action, it's verbal as well, isn't it? You've got the elders who speak prayers, they pray in the name of Jesus that this person will be healed. And then you can imagine as the oil's going over this person's head, and they realize that they are being set apart for a potential healing, that person, I believe, will be praying, Lord, please heal me. And when you get those things together, that is this prayer of faith that James is speaking about in verse 15. And I believe it will lead to that person being healed and being raised up to a restored walk with the Lord. Now this is very much in line with Jesus' ministry, isn't it? With Jesus' life. What did Jesus say to people when he was alive? People who'd been healed. He said often, didn't he? Your faith has healed you. What's he doing there? He's acknowledging that their belief that he could heal has initiated action in their life to go and seek after him and ask for healing. He's acknowledging that they have had a role in their healing, corresponding to the sick person 
in this scenario. But then also, what did Jesus do? He commissioned his apostles to go out and to pray for the sick and to anoint them with oil. And he would say, when they came back and they said, well, it didn't really happen, Lord, he said, well, you didn't have enough faith. What's he doing there? He's acknowledging again that the faith of these leaders, the apostles and the church leaders here, have something to do with this healing. This really, I would say, this little example of how God heals in the church is really a glorification of how Jesus healed when he was alive. And it's a continuation of that in church history. Now, what this also shows us very clearly is that God wants to heal. Listen, God wants to heal and God has a desire to heal today. I think there's a reality that when you look at Jesus' life, when you see that he came and he was initiating the kingdom of God on earth, what do we see happening? Loads and loads and loads of people get healed. That confirms to us that part of the kingdom of God is God's desire to heal people physically. And he wants to do it. And he wants to do it today. And this is one of the ways that it comes about. Now, even though he has this desire and wants to do it, does that mean that every single person that gets prayed for healing gets healed? No. Many of you in here have probably prayed for people to be healed before, and it's not happened. Why, why is that the case? I don't have any idea. It's God's decision. God and his sovereign will chooses whether he heals in specific situations or not. But even though that's the case, he still wants to do it. He still has a desire to do it. And because of that, he wants us to be obedient to these two verses in James chapter 5. He's wanting us to live this out in the church today. This is what he wants, brothers and sisters. But notice there's something else at the end of verse 15 that happens in this healing. He says there, and if he has committed sins, he will be forgiven. Now this opens up, for me as a preacher, a can of worms. Because it, it brings up something that we don't like to hear as Christians. And that is that God sometimes allows Christians to go through illness because they've sinned. And this is a reality that's confirmed by the Apostle Paul in 1 Corinthians 11, verses 27 to 30. Listen to what he says. He says, speaking of the Lord's Supper, he says, Therefore, whoever eats this bread or drinks this cup of the Lord in an unworthy manner will be guilty of the body and the blood of the Lord. But let a man examine himself, and so let him eat of the bread and drink of the cup. For he who eats and drinks in an unworthy manner eats and drinks judgment to himself, not discerning the Lord's body. For this reason, many are weak and sick among you, and many sleep. Paul in 1 Corinthians 11 is saying very clearly that if you take the Lord's communion in an unworthy manner, and listen, these guys in Corinth were doing that. 
they were getting drunk, intoxicated by the wine that was being given for the Lord's Supper. I mean, how crazy is that? But that's what they were doing. They were taking it in an unworthy manner, and because of that, the Lord allowed some of those people to get sick. Why? Because he wanted to be really nasty to them? No, because he loved them. He was being gracious to them and merciful because he wanted to get their attention and say, look, there's something going on here that's wrong, that's not good. I want you to see that. I love you. I don't want you to walk in this way. And because of that, I'm allowing this to happen to you, to grab your attention. And this is what God sometimes does. He sometimes allows that to happen. Now, I must just say, if, uh, for those of you who might be suffering with a physical illness in here today, I'm not saying you've sinned. I'm not saying that. I really am not. What I'm saying is, is that there's a potential that this can happen. And you get this idea in this um, verse that maybe some of these guys that James is writing to were going down that road. They'd sinned. They were going into a place of sickness and they were being humbled by that. They saw that they needed to repent. They turned back to God. And he's saying, call the elders, be anointed with oil, and you will be healed. And it's the healing that confirms that they are forgiven. What a, think about that. What an amazing God that we have. The God would allow someone to go through sickness, to humble them so that they repent from their sin, turn back to him, and then heal them physically completely and entirely. They don't deserve to be healed. God could just leave them in that position, but God chooses to use a healing to confirm their forgiveness, I believe, to show just how gracious, just how loving, and just how merciful he is. God is an amazing God. He's incredible. Now, how does this all relate to us pursuing real fellowship? Well, I would say that for all of us in here, if we know people that are sick in Servants Church or other Christians that are sick, we need to encourage and exhort them to be obedient to what this text is saying. To seek out and call to themselves the elders of the church so that this can happen. And the truth is, I, w I, I think we don't do this enough in Servants Church. We are not being obedient necessarily to this as much as we could do. And I would just say, you know, if you call me up to do this, I can guarantee you that I will have olive oil, like every good Italian, because I like olive oil. But seriously, we need to encourage each other to be obedient to this. And I would say that because sickness is such a sensitive thing in people's lives... You should probably do this within the context of a home group. Within a home group, you get to know people, they know you, you know their problems, their weaknesses, and it's within that context that I would say you can exhort people to seek out the elders' help. And so again, this is another example where I'm not going to suggest to you to go to a home group, I'm going to call you to go to a home group, because it's something that God wants you to do so that you can be growing in those real, genuine relationships in the church. But I also want to address people in here who are sick today. 
And I want to say to you, if you're sick in here and you have a physical illness, listen, God knows how difficult it is for you. God knows, listen, how lonely it feels for you sometimes that you have this illness, you have this sickness. He understands that. He's gone through physical difficulty as well. And he's saying to you today, if you're sick, think about being obedient to these verses. Seek out the elders to pray in this way, to anoint you with oil, pray in faith to be healed, and see what God does. I can't guarantee you, you are going to be healed, but what I can can guarantee you is God will honor his word. He will always honor his word. He holds his word higher than his name, it says in the book of Psalms. God will always do that. But I also want to address sick people in here as well, and I hope I don't offend you when I say this, but I do feel the Lord wants to say it. One of the things that stops us when we're sick from asking for help, is pride. When we're sick, our pride does not go away. We don't want to ask for help. We don't want to humble ourselves. We don't want to be vulnerable. And God is saying, don't allow that pride to get in the way of what he might do in healing you, physically from your illness. Don't listen to the enemy who says nothing's going to happen, or you don't want to bother me or bother John or bother someone else in the church, humble yourself. Let go of that pride and pursue that genuine fellowship, as God is saying here. So that's our first thing. The second thing is in verses 16, 17, and 18, where James begins to speak to us about pursuing genuine fellowship in the presence of the sin that's in our life. He says there in verse 16, he says, confess your trespasses to one another. And so he's saying there, look, I want you to be honest, I want you to be true, I want you to be real, where you fall short of the glory of God in your life as a believer. Where it says trespasses there, the Greek word for for that means falling by the wayside. It's this idea that as Christians, we have this narrow path to walk towards the Lord, towards eternity, towards heaven. And there are many things that can trip us up on that path that can lead us to fall down, to fall by the wayside. And he's saying here, look, I want you to be honest with each other about those things that hinder you in your walk with Jesus. This could be a habitual sin. It could be a way of heart, maybe your emotions, maybe your thought life, how you speak, how you act around people, all these things that lead us to fall by the wayside, he's saying, confess that to each other. (laughs) Now, everyone in here, I can guarantee, is probably thinking at the moment, I'm not going to do that. I mean, let's be honest, we find that hard, don't we? We find it very, very hard to be honest, again, with each other about where we're weak in the Lord. And I can guarantee you that everyone in here has some kind of weakness that they struggle with. Some kind of thing that they keep taking to the Lord and say, Lord, please help me with this. Please help me with this. And nothing's happening. Well, could it be because you're not confessing it to someone else? Could it be because 
Again, because of pride. Because we don't want to be real with each other. We don't want to be true. We don't want to be vulnerable. So God says, I'm not going to deal with that yet until you're obedient to what I'm saying here. And so I want to ask you a question, each one of you in here, very seriously. Is there at least one or two people in this church that know what your weakness is? That know where you struggle as a believer? Because if there isn't, there's a problem. It means that you're not really pursuing genuine fellowship about the sin that's in your life. And God is saying to you today, that needs to be sorted out. If you want, I want to help you. I want to heal you, as we'll see in a minute. But I want you to be honest about that. Again, remember, you're justified in Christ. You're forgiven. You're innocent and righteous before the Father. So because of that, don't be worried. Don't be scared. Humble yourself. Confess to other people. Again, I'm going to bring it up again. The best place for this to happen is in a home group. So again, I'm not going to suggest you to go to a home group. I'm going to call you to go to a home group. Look, I know it's hard. I know there are difficult circumstances with families and everything like that, but I'm still going to call you to go to a home group. Whether it's on the Wednesday, whether it's the once a month men's or women's, whatever it is, you need to be in one of those groups. Because that is the only way I believe that people can get to know you, can get to know where you struggle, and where those relationships can grow, that you can confess your trespasses to each other. So having confessed, what does he then want us to do? He wants us to pray. He says, and pray for one another that you may be healed. He's saying there, look, when, when there's this confession, when, when there's this honesty, take it to God. Pray about it. Say, Lord, please help this brother, this sister in this situation. What does he say? That you may be healed. Not that you might, you may be healed. There's, in a sense, a guarantee with that. The word for healed there means to be made whole. He's saying here, look, I want you to pray about these trespasses, that they would go away, that God would deal with it by his spirit, that every single one of you would be sanctified in Jesus and be free from that sin. Hallelujah. This is what he wants to do. He then speaks more about this prayer when he says the effective, fervent prayer of a righteous man avails much. And what he's saying there is he's saying, look, when someone confesses a trespass to you, when you pray about it, I don't want you to just pray about it once. I want you to keep on praying on. When it says there, the effective, fervent prayer, do you know what that means? It means to pray to pray. It means breaking through that barrier that we all experience when we get up in the morning, when God wants us to pray, and we're like, Lord, I just don't feel like it. Well, pray to pray. Keep on going on. That's what he's saying. And he says, if you do that, that prayer will avail much. Do you know what that means? It means much fruit will come from that prayer. In this, James agrees with Paul in Colossians 4.2, where Paul says, continue earnestly in prayer, being vigilant in it 
with thanksgiving. Prayer is not easy. Listen, why is this coming up here? Well, it's because it's so easy not to pray, isn't it? It's so easy not to pray. I mean, I've been convicted about that this week as I've been studying this, that lots of people speak to me about things, and the truth is I will pray with them there and then. I'm pretty, I would say I'm pretty good at that, but I'm not good at carrying on praying in this effective, fervent way. And why is it so difficult to pray? Well, listen, because the devil, the world, and your flesh does not want you to become more like Jesus. Understand what I'm saying. The devil, the world out there, and your sinful nature does not want Jesus to be coming forth from your heart. Because they know that if Jesus comes forth more from your heart, you're going to experience God more and you're going to be used of God more and more of those people out there who are lost in Norwich are going to get saved. So of course, the devil doesn't want that to happen. So what's the best way to stop that from happening? A church that doesn't pray. A church that doesn't carry on in the work of prayer. This is such an important point, brothers and sisters. And it was such an important point for James that he wants to encourage us in this very thing, to keep on praying on. And he uses the example of a man in the Old Testament called Elijah, the prophet Elijah. He says there in verse 17, Elijah was a man with a nature like ours. Now when you see that word nature there, it is a word that is used to describe our very deep-seated emotions. It really is a thing that describes our sinful nature. And so what it's saying here is that Elijah, listen, that great prophet, he was a sinner. He was a man that had inherited sin that he'd received from Adam. He was like us in that regard. But when you read about Elijah in 1 Kings 17 and 18, you see that even though that man was a sinner, he was a righteous man. He was a righteous man because he did not stand for the sin of the nation of Israel at the time when he was ministering to them, particularly King Ahab, who was the king at that time, who in 1 Kings 16 is said to have been the most evil king that ever existed in the history of Israel. And so he stood up against that sin of both the king and the nation by praying earnestly that it would not rain. And it did not rain in Israel for three and a half years. There was great famine. There was great drought in that nation at that time. And then what do we see in the, the 1 Kings 18? We see this face-off between the prophets of Baal and this single man, Elijah, and Elijah's righteousness is confirmed that when he prays to God, the fire of heaven comes down and consumes the sacrifice. And all of Israel realize at that point, man, this guy is of God. We want to follow that. We want to follow you. Follow you, Lord, through this man. We want to turn back to you. We want to repent of our sin and come back to a restored relationship with you. And what then happens? Elijah prays again, 
and the heavens open and rain comes. And the earth produces its fruit. One man in a nation of hundreds of thousands, if not millions, changed the whole entire reality of that nation through prayer. Think about that. One sinner who prayed earnestly to the Lord resulted in a whole nation being changed. Can you imagine if that happened in the UK? If I prayed personally for it not to rain in this country for three and a half years, I'd have the whole authorities coming after me. Where is this Dr. Maggio who's prayed this prayer? We need to find him. We need to know what he's got to do to stop this from happening. And I say, well, you need to repent and turn back to Jesus. And then I believe it would happen. An incredible thing. And James wants to highlight it. Now, when we look at Elijah, it's very difficult for us to see that we could be like Elijah. We look at men like Elijah, these great guys of the Old Testament, these, these prophets that stood up against the sin of the nation Israel, and we're like, oh, I could never be like Elijah. I could never pray like him. But let's, let's think about this, and this is very important. Where did Elijah get his righteousness from? He got it in the same way that we receive righteousness. Elijah received righteousness by faith. He was saved in the same way that we are saved. He was saved by grace through faith. He believed, listen, that the Messiah would come one day and deal with the sins in his life. And as the Spirit began to work in his life, you see in 1 Kings 17 that even though he received this righteousness, the righteousness came out of his heart through praying that the sinful nation would repent. But listen, his righteousness was shown in that he was so obedient to God that he was prepared, listen, to be fed by ravens, birds, for a period of time. He was so obedient to God that he was prepared to have his sustenance from one measly jar of flour and oil that the Lord sustained through a woman, a non-Israelite woman, if I'm right in remembering. And then he was so obedient and so reliant upon God that when that woman's son passed away from an illness, he sought after God earnestly over and over again three times, and this boy was brought back to life. He had this righteousness because he was obedient to God and he was completely trusting in the Lord. Now, I want to say to you that you in here are the same as Elijah. You're the same as Elijah. Listen, in this sense, that you've been saved in the same way that Elijah was saved, by grace through faith. You have the same spirit working in your heart that was working in Elijah's heart all those years ago. You, if you're growing in righteousness in the Lord, will be growing in being obedient to him and being completely dependent upon him. 
And if you're in that place today, listen, you have the right, you have the same standing as Elijah, and you can pray in the same way Elijah prayed. You can pray knowing that you are righteous because of Christ, and if you earnestly pray, it will avail much. Okay, you might not stop the rain for three and a half years, but you might see some Christian's life changed. You might not see the rain stop for that time, but you might see someone delivered from sin, delivered from some sort of illness, put on the right road with the Lord to be fruitful to the Lord for that person's life. The effective, fervent prayer of a righteous man avails much. Remember that. Again, don't let the devil rob you of believing that your prayers are effective. Listen to what it says in Proverbs about our prayers. It says in Proverbs 15:8, the sacrifice of the wicked is an abomination to the Lord, but the prayer of the upright is his delight. Do you know that it delights God when you pray? He is delighted by your prayers. Then in Proverbs 15:29 it says the Lord is far from the wicked, but he hears the prayer of the righteous. Again, you're righteous not because of your own performance, but because of Jesus and because of what Jesus is producing in your life. Therefore, you can know that whatever prayer it is, however small, however big, God hears that. Go to God with your prayers. Don't listen to the lie of the enemy that says it doesn't do anything. Even if you have to pray for something for years and years and years. Do you know that Isaac... His wife, Rebecca, was barren. And you know, he prayed, listen, for 20 years that she would get pregnant, and then in the end she did. 20 years. I'm sure that he got discouraged in that time, but he kept on going on because he believed that God answered his prayers. Pray, brothers and sisters. It's such an important thing. It's something that in the Western world, we're so bad at. And we're bad at it because we have so much excess. And we don't feel that we need anything. And because we don't feel that we need anything, we don't go to God. And I feel that the Lord wants to say to us, that has to change. It has to change. If you want to see things happen in your life as a believer in this church, then you have to change your attitude towards prayer. You have to start seeing that it's important. You have to start earnestly praying all the time. Whether it's on your own, whether it's in groups, whatever it is, you need to start doing that. God wants to bring this change, brothers and sisters. Let's be obedient to that. So lastly and finally, in verses 19 and 20 we see that James brings up the third and final thing that he wants us to pursue real fellowship in, and that's with the wandering soul. The wandering soul. He says there, Brethren, if anyone among you wanders from the truth and someone turns him back, let him know that he who turns a sinner from the error of his way will save a soul from death and cover a multitude of sins. Now, it's very important for us to see something that's not obvious in these two verses, and that is that you see that word wanders there. The way that that's written in the Greek, 
is written in a way where this wandering of this person was expected to happen. That it was almost decided in the past that this person would wander away. Remember that, that's important. And then in verse 20, he, he, this, James acknowledges this person that wanders away as a sinner. And that word for sinner there, overwhelmingly in the New Testament, is used of people who are not saved. People who are not born again. And so I think when you bring those two things together, this person in verses 19 and 20 who wanders away from the truth is someone who goes to church and is not truly saved. They appear to be Christians, but they're not born again. They don't have the Spirit of God within them. And because of that, in some ways, it's in a sense expected that they will wander away from the truth, whether it's because they start having persecution because they're seen as Christians, or they start going through a difficult time and they get angry with God, they wander away. They have, as um, Paul said to Timothy, a form of religion, but they deny the power thereof. So that's, what he spe- that, that, that's the condition of this wandering soul. And he says, if any one of you goes after that person and turns him back, and the idea behind that is that they literally convert them, Again, I think, confirming that this person's not saved. It says, Let him know he's turned a sinner from the error of his way and will save his soul from death, from being in hell for eternity, and will cover a multitude of sins. I.e., the blood of Jesus Christ will cover that person's sins and not only cover it, but wash it away forever and ever. Now, why is he bringing this up at the end of this letter? It seems slightly odd. Well, he's bringing it up because, listen, when we go through tough times as a believer, actually I would say when when we have any time as a believer, it is so easy to forget people that have come into the church, have sort of had some kind of response to the gospel, and then they go. It's so easy to forget those people. I mean, I have been convicted about that this week because there was an individual who came along to this church uh, probably towards the back end of last year and they professed faith, they professed that they believed in the Lord and then they left. They left, they went after uh, a sinful life. And I was convicted and I was thinking, man, I haven't gone after that person. I haven't sought them out. I haven't gone to see how they're doing. Do you know what I mean? It's so easy to forget those people. We get so consumed with the things of our life. And this is important because, listen, Jesus would go after that person. If Jesus was sitting in that front row next to Derek and Sheila and all those, that would be pretty good, wouldn't it? Um, And that person had gone out, Jesus would go after them. And he would go to try and bring them back. And we see this very clearly in Luke chapter 15, verses 4 to 7, where it says, What man of you, having a hundred sheep, if he loses one of them, does not leave the ninety-nine in the wilderness and go after the one which is lost until he finds it? And when he's found it, he lays it on his shoulders, rejoicing. 
And when he comes home, he calls together his friends and neighbors, saying to them, Rejoice with me, for I found my sheep which was lost. I say to you that likewise there will be more joy in heaven over one sinner who repents than over 99 just persons who need no repentance. What's Jesus saying there? He's saying, I, am off. I, I have a heart for those people that wander away from the truth. I'm going to go after them. You would go after your sheep if they were lost. Why don't you go after the person that wanders away from the truth, wanders away from church? That's my heart. My heart is for people to be saved, not for church to be a social club. My heart is to actually bring people into the kingdom of God so that they know me, they can experience me, they can know my love. And he's saying to these people, you've forgotten those people that have gone away from the church and you need to go after them so that they may be saved. And this, I have to say, is one of the most freeing ways of getting over problems that you have. And I think this is the point that James is trying to make. He's trying to say, look, I know you've had a tough time. I know you're, you're struggling, but stop thinking about yourself and think about that person that needs to be saved. Think about that person that's wandered away because that's my heart. I'm going to help you with your difficulties. I'm going to help you with your persecution, but I've got a be better and more important thing for you to do, and that is to share Jesus with that person that's wandered away. That's my heart. And that's really how I feel the Lord wants to end James. That all of us in here, as believers, are going to go through tough times. We're going to go through persecution. We're going to go through people not liking us, physical illness. But there's something more important than those things. And that is where we're going to be in eternity. Whatever difficulty you have in this life, brother, sister, if you're in Christ, I believe you're going to be in eternity with him forever and ever. It says in Romans that the suffering we experience here now is nothing compared to the glory that we'll have with God in eternity. And he wants to end this epistle by saying, let's get our eyes off of our difficulties Trust that he will keep us and go after those people that are lost. Amen.